My guest today is Professor A.J. Shaka. Dr. Shaka grew up in Salt Lake City and attended Harvey Mudd College, majoring in chemistry. He went on to earn a Ph.D. in physical chemistry at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship. He joined the UCI chemistry department over 30 years ago and is currently the director of the UCI nuclear reactor facility, having taken an interest in radiochemistry over seven years ago. Welcome, Professor Shaka. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you for being with us today. I know you're passionate about nuclear energy, so I want to definitely talk about that. I'm not familiar with Harvey Mudd College. Can you talk a little bit about how you chose to go to school there? Yeah, I can. Harvey Mudd was a response to the Russian Sputnik satellite launch. At that time, there was a major panic uh, that the Russians were ahead of us and that they were going to be in space before we were and that we didn't have enough scientists and engineers. And so at the time I went to Harvey Mudd, there were only four majors. You had to major in engineering. There was no specialty in engineering. It was just capital E, engineering, chemistry, physics, or math. And I knew that I wanted to do physical sciences at the time I was a senior in high school. I wasn't 100% sure whether I wanted to do physics or chemistry. I ended up in physical chemistry, which is kind of a hybrid of the two. There were two reasons. First of all, they were very strong in science. And second of all, I was a tennis player at the time but I was not a Division I type of tennis player. And at Harvey Mudd, I could play NCAA Division Three, and that was a very good outlet to shake off all the nerves from all those exams and various other things and keep me out of trouble. Super. Where's Harvey Mudd located? Up in Claremont. Okay. Uh, yeah, very Just... close by Pomona College and Scripps. And gotcha. Or all those. Gotcha. Great. And when you decided to go for your PhD, how did Oxford come into your vision? I hadn't planned to go to Oxford, but the chair of the department said, why don't you apply for prestigious scholarships? And because you're an athlete, why don't you apply for the roads? And I didn't know much about it, actually, but I had people looking out for me. They had taken an interest in me. Does Rhodes Scholar, does that mean there's an athletic component? It used to, Ah. until that became a set of measure zero, and then they started taking politicians, like (laughs) Bill Clinton, um, to their detriment. But yeah, it was meant to be something where you had some sporting aspect. You could row, you were... A runner, I think Craig Mosbach, who subsequently became a sportscaster for NBC, was one of the ten fastest men in the world and had a 3.8 from Princeton when he went. So I applied to the usual graduate schools for physical chemistry, and I was interested at that time in magnetic resonance. So I applied to UC Berkeley, Harvard, a couple some other places, I don't recall them all, but anyway, I knew at that time I wanted to study that kind of science. And then they had the Rhodes interviews before Thanksgiving, and they said, you won, and so you can go to Oxford. And so at that time, I said, okay, I'll go. And they had a very good guy there, fellow of the Royal Society, Dr. Ray Freeman. And I ended up working for him, and it worked out really well for me. So I was pleased with that. And how did you find your way to UCI? Well, when I came back from Oxford, I did go to Berkeley to postdoc for the same person I had considered working with as a student, Professor Alex Pines. And I basically applied to some jobs in industry, 
and to some jobs in academia. And he really said, you should forget about industry. And I said, why? And he said, well, you'll be fired. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, because you won't do what they tell you to do. And in industry, you really do have to. He said, you need to have some independence so you can do what you want. And he suggested that I apply to UCI. And I said, I don't want to apply <clears throat> to any place in Southern California because the air there is awful. And keep in mind, I was at Harvey Mudd in the 70s when you couldn't even see Mount Baldy from Claremont right. until one day the air blew out the smog and suddenly I saw, I was amazed that there was a mountain range there. But basically, you could look a couple of miles down a boulevard and it would just disappear into this gray, right. ozone-induced right. smog haze. And I remember those days. Yeah, Man. the air was terrible. Yeah. And like a lot of people, at, at least at that time, I confused... Irvine and Riverside and Professor Pine said well you know Irvine I think is where the people from Beverly Hills go when they want to go on vacation <laughs> down there by the beach or close, maybe you yeah. should consider <laughs> that and so I didn't know much about the department but when I came here they had really top-notch people they were very friendly and they had a position so I took it Professor Roland who subsequently won the Nobel Prize was a very nice guy. He was very supportive, very mild-mannered, and very bright, and he had this egalitarian view that most departments still do not have, namely that assistant professors vote on every single personnel action. So if somebody is going from professor N to N plus one, the assistant professors read what the person has done, how their teaching's going, what kind of research they're doing, how many papers they've published, and they also vote, and these votes count. And in many departments, it's a hierarchy in which only people above you are allowed to vote. And of course, they're always above you forever hmm. in that case. Interesting. Um, you usually don't go by them. Uh, they actually kick you out of the department meeting, for example. If you're an assistant professor at many schools and a full professor is being considered for some action, uh, you, you're asked to leave the room mm -hmm. because it's none of your business. Roland was not like that, and our department has maintained that. And as a result, you feel an inclusiveness in the department from the moment you arrive, and very few people leave. Some people do for various reasons sometimes to go back to a European country, for example, but or, or in certain cases they have a kind of an offer they can't refuse type of mm. deal. But most of us have stayed, and it's been very good for the stability of the chemistry department to have that kind of working model. So while you, your early years at UCI, was it magnetic resonance that you were working in that area? Or? That's what I was doing. Mm. That's what I was doing. And I was working um, specifically on uh, new kinds of techniques in magnetic resonance. Uh, the, the analogy I would give is if I were in microscopy, I'd be working on different kinds of microscope objectives that had higher resolving power. And because you're working on the microscope objective, you actually aren't looking at anything too interesting. In other words, you'd really like to be looking at a test pattern like an eye chart to see how well you can see it. Of course, to most people, the eye chart itself is not that interesting, but to the person who's prescribing you the glasses, it's very interesting how well you can see it. 
But as magnetic resonance matured, nuclear magnetic resonance, it became more and more about the kinds of samples you could look at. So the microscope objectives, so to speak, had matured, and now it was you're looking at living cells, different kinds of stains, all sorts of different things. And the people who are interested in that aren't interested in how the microscope works. They're just interested that it works, and they're interested only in what they're looking at. And that's where magnetic resonance has gone. It's become an applications-oriented discipline that's now quite mature and now has biologists and other people. And you can use, of course, you can use magnetic resonance, as you know, to have MRI scans. Well, that was being developed, MRI, when I was a graduate student. And most people in magnetic resonance who were using it for chemistry thought that would, quote, never work. That's how they viewed it. It was pretty much impossible to get that to work. And you can see how wrong they were. Uh, now we have functional magnetic resonance imaging and brain scans and so forth and so on. But again, that's also a mature technology. It's now being used by psychology departments. Right. Right? It's, right. it's used actually in application. And as the field matured more and more and more toward that direction, there was less and less and less for me to do. Mm-hmm. Okay? So magnets became as big as they could be. The kinds of technology to get the noise down matured to as, about as good as you could get it. The kinds of tricks you could do to milk the most information out and really get the best kind of structure of these proteins and DNA was worked out over time, putting in specific isotopes, carbon-13, nitrogen-15, etc. That was also worked out over time. And um, I didn't really want to switch to being a sample-oriented kind of guy, so I switched fields entirely. I wouldn't recommend that as a great (laughs) career move. But it is interesting. So I had to learn suddenly in nuclear, like the nuclear reactor, that also has the N-word in it, but it's totally different. It's nothing to do with magnetic property, and it's all to do with radioactive nuclei and different kinds of experiments altogether. And I became interested in that because I saw through our excellent Earth System Science Department, actually, and all the seminars that they would have on climate change and the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere going up and ice melting and various things happening, the ocean becoming more acidic over time, that it was clear to me that we needed durable, huge, carbon-free source of power. And I at first thought that perhaps solar power, uh, like a lot of people still think, would be the answer, or maybe wind. And I thought nuclear power had too many drawbacks. The nuclear waste would be a drawback. What would you do with it? Oh, it's so dangerous, and radiation's so dangerous, and you really, it would be a terrible burden to have all this mm-hmm. knock-on consequences. But as I found out, as I learned more about the field, Most of those fears were rather like a small kid being afraid of the dark. The fear is real, but the basis for the fear doesn't exist. Unfortunately, if you're afraid of something that doesn't exist, and you're a little kid, your heart starts beating, and you release adrenaline, and you're afraid. 
There's a guy in the closet or whatever it might be. And that's where I feel most people are about nuclear technology. They don't realize that spent fuel from a reactor can never be made into a bomb. It's much more efficient to do what the Iranians were doing, you know, purify uranium, or use specialized weapons reactors like Chernobyl. Most people think Chernobyl was a power plant. It was not. It was a plutonium production facility. And if you're producing plutonium for bombs, safety is not your top, you know, <laughs> concern. <clears throat> There's sort of a black humor in that environment about safety. You're producing the most unsafe things so far. Who cares about the particular safety features of the reactor? Hmm. And so we would never have a reactor like that to produce electricity in which you can remove fuel and there's graphite everywhere in the reactor and it has all these drawbacks. But if you're, it's, it's sort of like if, if you have to have a, a, a fire to toast a marshmallow, so you have to be able to stick the marshmallow in, toast it a little while, then pull it out, then you need a different kind of reactor. None of the uh, civilian nuclear power reactors are like that because they aren't designed to produce material for weapons. You have to have a specialized reactor to do that. And the United States had them at Hanford and uranium enrichment facilities at Oak Ridge National Lab and testing places in Los Alamos. Hmm. And the two got sort of entangled in everybody's mind. Hmm. These big bombs going off, the danger of that, and reactors. But a reactor itself is not a danger. In fact, there's never been any death at all in the United States from civilian nuclear power. You can't make up a safety record like that. No other industry is even close to that. And driving your car around is very, very dangerous, and driving a motorcycle is 28 times per mile more dangerous than a car. Mm -hmm. But you notice people still do that. They somehow either feel they want to do that, or they feel it's essential. I have to drive my car to get to work, and I have the illusion that I'm in control, because not that I'm looking at my phone or something else, which often people are doing. With a power plant, they see the power plant, they don't understand how it works. They may see armed guards, which is overkill in my view, which makes people actually think that it's much more dangerous than it might be. But there are, there are lots of ways to cause chaos. You can poison people. You've seen mm -hmm. Kim kill his brother there with a chemical mm -hmm. agents, and, and there are lots of scary scenarios uh, that, that can be done, mm. but you can't be afraid of everything. The big advance that humans had, not that language and tools aren't important, but other, other animals use language, other animals use tools. Elephants seem to be aware of their mortality. They go back to where their mother died and, and pick up the bone with their trunk and stand there as if they're mourning. But the advantage that humans had is that we mastered fire. And all other animals are afraid of fire. And so when you come to the king of the jungle with a burning brand, he takes off. And when you can light the forest on fire purposefully to clear it, you're a, ter you're a terrible danger to every other animal. And you can light fires to keep bugs away for your own purposes. 
And fire is terribly dangerous. Everybody gets burned from time to time, buildings burn down, things happen. But nobody says human society should go without fire because look at these terrible burn wounds and all this danger. We, we should outlaw it entirely because it's just far too dangerous, because it's far too useful. Uh, right? We can't forge steel, we can't do anything without it. And my view of the future is that without nuclear power, we're dead. Nuclear is the next fire. If you're afraid of it, you'll go extinct. When you bring up this, your knowledge of this area, do people, because it seems like nuclear energy is going in the United States, is going through a public relations crisis because even myself, from before I talked to you, I was like, oh, you know, radiation and the dangers that it poses. And, we, you know, we've had some incidents over the last few decades. What, what are your fellow scientists, you know, are, are they just feeling like, oh, it's just a political football, so I, I don't even want to look at that? Or, you know, what, or no, this is a really controversial idea, you know. What's your sense of... Well, nuclear power is a bit like abortion, in that one side is much more passionate about prohibiting it than the other side is passionate about being for it. And if you're very, very focused on stopping something, marching around with signs saying, no, 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 and the other side what says, well, I think we should go that way, but, you know, I have to go to work today then you have this kind of lopsided thing in which the one side of the issue uh, uh, is much more passionate about stopping something. And they use fear or various emotional tactics uh, to do that. The other side can be sort of broadly for it. In fact, the majority of people could be broadly for it, but not that they're going to take a day off work to protest in favor of keeping San, San Onofre open. And again, the, the fear of radiation is the primary thing. If, if, and that fear is based on very bad science. So the whole basis of the linear no-threshold theory is actually incorrect, and it's taken a long time for people to realize how incorrect it is. But the basis of the so-called LNT, linear no-threshold theory, is that any amount of radiation is, is bad because it does something to you, it does some damage. It may scuttle your DNA, it may cause something to go wrong. Eventually these things build up and then you get cancer, or birth defects, or etc., etc. And, of course, if nobody thinks an atomic bomb is good for your health, so a, an atomic bomb where you get a very large dose of radiation over a very short time is very much akin to somebody who's very fair-skinned going out near the equator on the beach all day in a swimsuit and really, really getting sunburned so that they get blistered 
and then you come to the conclusion that all sunlight is dangerous and maybe you should just cover yourself up from head to toe to avoid that and of course that's known to be extremely bad for your health because without sunlight you don't activate to produce vitamin D and so there's a correlation globally with how much UV light you get from the sun and solid tumors. Skin cancer follows solar irradiation, that's true. But solid tumors, which are much more dangerous, other kinds of cancer, are inversely correlated with it. And it's thought that because you produce more vitamin D in the sunshine, they used to send people from England to Italy to convalesce, get more sun, they feel better, etc. Could be the chemical basis for that is vitamin D. But vitamin D is, is, is rather like radiation in the sense that I can give you a, a huge dose of vitamin D and you'll die. If I give you 10 million units of vitamin D, it's too much at once and your body has no way to cope with that and you may actually die from vitamin D intoxication or have very bad health outcome. But then to conclude, because a huge dose of something is terrible, maybe even fatal, that therefore no vitamin D is where you want to be, that's sort of the logical conclusion of this radiation argument. Mm -hmm. And in fact, radiation on Earth used to be much higher in the past than it is now. And the reason why all organisms have DNA repair enzymes is to fix small nicks and cuts and damage like that. But when they did the study that said you could have chromosomal damage, they were assuming that one little uh, ray of radiation would cause one little nick in DNA at some base pair. That was called the single hit model. And that's not what happens, because if you have a, something like that, there's a crew that comes along, just like repairing a train track, and it comes along, it says, what's this? It pulls it out, puts in a fresh one, and there's absolutely no damage whatsoever left behind. And if you inhibit living things, if you inhibit all their DNA repair enzymes and just let them live normally, they die. Hmm. So these repair enzymes are extremely important. A little bit of radiation is probably like exercise. It's very good, in fact, although people, it makes their skin crawl. When you do exercise, if I, if I take a muscle biopsy, I can see the damage, and you can feel the damage. You're sore. I'm never doing that again, right? But what happens is you get stronger. You actually ha are healthier because as long as you don't overdo it, you don't grab 800 pounds and try to hoist it over your head and hurt your back, uh, that's overdoing it. But that doesn't mean that a small amount of exercise with the 30-pound dumbbells and a little bit of running and keeping active isn't a good idea. And in fact, in some experiments, people who are exposed to slightly higher by which I mean 20, 30, 40 times background radiation, much higher than we're allowed to be exposed to on our working site here, have better health. Why would that be? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, your immune system is very sensitive to any kind of thing going on. 
So if you have a little bit of extra damage, a little bit of extra stuff going on, your immune system may actually be heightened. It's rather like before 9-11, I see a guy in a trench coat taking photos of skyscrapers. I ignore it. Nothing's happened. After that, I see some guy doing that. I say, who is that guy? Let's report him. Something's going on. So it could be that a low level of just slight damage, nothing fatal, nothing permanent, but a slight elevated level, causes your body to go on alert. Now it comes along and it finds some cell that in fact is precancerous that looks suspicious. Boom, it hits it. And so you find lower levels of cancer, not higher, lower, and quite a lot lower in cases where people are exposed wow. to certain kinds wow. of gamma irradiation. So has this issue just become a political football? I mean, because you give compelling reasons. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's in the public conversation. No, it's pretty frustrating, actually. And there's an anti-science bias. And now I, I would argue there's an anti-truth bias. That the, the lessons of the Enlightenment, where we, we started making big advances, you seek the truth, you do experiments, you don't prejudge, you don't just say it's my way, I'm right, or just refer to Aristotle or the Bible. You actually do an experiment. You, you're curious, you see microorganisms, maybe they have something to do with why people are getting sick, etc. If you just operate like Pruitt and Trump, you just say nothing's happening because I say so, and I don't know any science, but I'm just going to say whatever I want, uh, then you get another outcome. The right is delusional because they argue that there is no change and business as usual is where we want to be. And unfortunately, the left is delusional as well because they argue that there is change and it's very important to combat it. But then they propose a Rube Goldberg power system that will never work as their solution. And I'll, I'll give you a reason why it will never work. And you, you, can, you can just pencil this out. Supposing I want to solve the CO2 problem, I want to do the right thing, and I've decided that solar power is the way to do it. So I'm going to open a solar power factory, and I'm going to power it with the solar power that I provide. Well, at first I have no solar power. So what I do is I contract somebody, I come to you, Kevin, and I say, look, please make me some solar panels and keep track of how much CO2 you put up when you make them because you're going to have to zone refine silicon, you're going to have to have aluminum frames, you're going to have to build me a building, you're going to have to pour concrete, you're going to have to do steel. All this puts up legion CO2. A lot. Not a little, a lot. But you're going to have to, like borrowing money to start a business, you're going to have to borrow into the CO2 to get going. I let, uh, you, you know, I let, I let you design it any way you want. You can have a big factory with many, many panels on the roof. 
You can put your panels out in the parking lot. You can put them out in the desert, whatever you want to do. But we will keep track of all the CO2 you put up by going into business so that we can mitigate it because it wouldn't have gone up if you hadn't started this scheme. All right, now I keep track of that, you're in business. Now you say, well, I put up so many uh, thousand tons of CO2, and so I'm, I have a power source now, I have these solar panels, so I'm gonna produce sodium hydroxide or something, and I'm going to, like Drano, I'm gonna spray that around, and it'll react with CO2 and pull it out of the atmosphere, and I'm gonna keep doing that until I've removed every gram of CO2 that I put up so I'm even Steven. And maybe I should remove a little bit more because it was heating up the earth while it was up there, so maybe I should pay a little interest on that loan. Okay? okay? You will find out that that takes years. Before you can go into business, that takes years. Okay. Now, so you're paying your staff to do nothing. Now you go into business. Well, guess what? Because you're 100% solar, you're off at night. You aren't producing any panels. Now you're gonna use your panels to manufacture new panels. My question is, how fast can you make them? Because in a 100% renewable future, that's all you've got. You've got stuff like that. If you have wind turbines, you have to replace the blades. They're made out of material. You have to make the material. You can't just go burn some coal or oil. You've got to truck them there on electric trucks, these great big heavy things, and all this, all this stuff. And, and, and when you do the analysis that way... Has that analysis been done? Nobody has proposed doing that because they act as if the panels drop from heaven, pre-manufactured, they use the dirtiest coal on earth in China to make those things as cheap as possible because they are not stupid. It's about making money. And if you can use somebody else's good intentions to make money and you can get a government to give you a subsidy, then everybody is in. Eventually, however, the government has to pay the money back or get it back or something. And these things have to be self-sustaining without any exogenous input from fossil fuels and at that point, you will find out that you cannot maintain society in its current state. It's as if we all decided, well, we'll put solar panels on our houses, we'll be our own power plant, and we'll all grow our own food in our backyard as if we could grow enough to eat and survive. And we'll bury grandma in our own backyard, and we'll process our own sewage, and we'll purify our own water, and we'll bury our own garbage, and we'll do everything like that. that this, is, this is kind of, we're going backwards. Division of labor, you have pros do what pros are good at, you have mechanized farming, because it's much more efficient, and most people don't want to do farming, and most people don't want to be in the power production business either. Uh, they think they do, it sounds good, it's counterculture. I've got my own thing, I'm off-grid etc etc um, and nuclear power con conventionally from the late 60s is really part of the establishment what they called the establishment we're against that we want to be more progressive than that that's big control the guys in suits etc 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 the man and that has stuck that image because the industry is extremely conservative 
we have an agency with regulation in its name, mm -hmm. um, it actually does over-regulate, unlike the EPA, I would argue. Hmm. And, and the air quality people, I think they're doing the right thing. But you can make something extremely expensive if you want to. You can put so many ifs, ands, or buts in the thing. Mm -hmm. Then investment is kind of curtailed. And why would I become a nuclear engineer in the 80s when they aren't building any more power plants after Three Mile Island when I can be a software engineer? And I can just design something to send dirty pictures around and make a fortune. I'd have to be crazy. So there isn't the quick t uh, turnaround on investment that you get with all these other things, Facebook, etc., etc. But all these other things I notice rely on electric power, and they take a lot of it. They take a lot of it. The cloud is no cloud. It's on Earth, and it's a ton of stuff that heats up, pulling incredible power to operate. It's great to call it the cloud, but there is no such thing. It's a bunch of computers somewhere with disk drives spinning and stuff heating up, and they're building them at the North Pole now so that they don't have to pay the air conditioning bill. And I guess they'll use them to melt the rest of the ice, for all I know. But you need to, you need to, to keep modern society going. You need to face these things. You can't possibly power those server farms. 100% solar and wind because it's intermittent. And you say, well, Dr. Shaka, I've heard of batteries. I'm going to build a battery. I'm going to have battery backup. For how long? These batteries will be enormous. And batteries don't produce power. All they do is even out your lousy power system that you've designed. So you have to put up tons of CO2 to make these batteries. And now you're going around in a circle rapidly where your power system is so inefficient that it almost can't refurbish itself. You have to produce new solar panels. If you have millions of them out in the desert, every 20 years you have to replace them all because they go duff. And anything mechanical like a wind turbine, it needs refurbishment. No mechanical engineer will say that will spin forever. If you have a hurricane, like they had in Puerto Rico, it's every man down. Mm -hmm. All their solar panels were compromised. They still aren't back on their feet. Mm -hmm. If they would have had a small, compact, fortified nuclear power plant with three feet of concrete over it, Turkey Point in Florida operated right throughout Irma and those, those hurricanes. There was no interruption in power. They, they went on alert. They were cautious, but they kept operating because you, you've got a small, compact thing that's incredibly powerful, and you can guard it. You can make huge concrete barriers if you want to. With these delocalized power things where it's on my roof, I've got to have some giant thing, <laughs> so, right, close over it like a Death Star or something when a storm comes. I can't afford that. Mm -hmm. um, so these things end up being exposed and they get damaged. Lightning hits them. Things happen. There's a tornado, whatever. And you have to take that into account before you propose doing that. So what I would argue is, California, you want to go 100% renewable? Show me. Where are you going to do it? 10,000 people. There are insurance brokers, car dealers, whatever. And now they're on wind, wave, and solar 
whatever, and not one iota of fossil fuels. Everybody's driving electric cars, everybody is, and so on. Mm -hmm. And every, all the refurbishment, when the batteries go duff, the new battery is made with, electric, with, with renewable sources, nothing else, sorry. You need to figure out how to make steel that way, mm. how to provide process heat for industry that way, mm. how to do this kind of thing. If you do the same analysis with nuclear, and you take, we've got thousands and thousands of tons of depleted uranium in Paducah, Kentucky, just sitting. You don't have to mine it. You can design a reactor called a molten salt fast spectrum reactor. And these reactors are incredibly small, incredibly powerful, and they are very much not in, along the lines of, of making anything with weapons. They're very much unsuited for that. I've been reading about these new smaller nuclear plants, so it wouldn't look like anything like San Onofre. It, would it be... wouldn't have to, no. What, what, what does it look like? Just a build, like kind of just normal commercial building? I mean, is I, I think uh, probably the best design is to bury them. Just bury them under the ground, mm -hmm. and there, there you go. They move if there is an earthquake. That along those lines might be a very good idea. But if you do the same thing, you say, gosh, you, now, okay, you show me with nuclear how you're going to do that. How are you going to power everything with that? How are you going to power, have new plants come on? Well, it turns out by the way the thing works, it's as if I have a fire and I put in a log and the log burns. And then after the log is burned, it's burned all night long. I have two logs plus all the energy. Now I have two logs. So I take one out and I start another fire and they each produce two logs by the next day. Well, if you remember the story with the grains of rice on the chessboard, it doesn't take too many days before you have a lot, right? And that's, that's how a breeder reactor works. It produces more fuel than it uses. So it's perfect. You start up one reactor, you wait a year, you pull out half the stuff, you've got another reactor ready to go. Now you've got two of them. In another year, you've got four then eight. And guess what? It takes 12 years and you can power the whole world on nuclear without any CO2 going up because you have 4,096 reactors. That's two to the 12th. And they're all very powerful and they're all on 24-7 powering those server farms, a tier one university like UCI where we have refrigerators and freezers that must be on without fail, minus 80 degrees C, you've got stuff frozen, you're going to lose a lifetime of work if that stuff goes south. And you can do it. Now, what about the waste? Well, for one thing, there's two kinds of waste. There's what I would call heavy waste. Those are elements heavier than uranium. And those are pretty bad. You certainly wouldn't want to be eating those or breathing them in. And those are the ones where, because those are present, they say, gee, we'll have to bury this stuff or guard it or et cetera, et cetera, for 100,000 years, much longer than humanity has existed. But these kinds of reactors, these new Gen 4 ones that I'm talking about, don't produce any of that. And so they produce waste that is pretty much dead after a couple of hundred years. You can store that. 
and then it's it's cold you can toss it it's hmm. no different from anything else at that point in fact you can mine the waste it has a lot by the time the radiation dies down you have sources of rhodium rhodium is an extremely important element in chemistry and there isn't much of it but for example if you operate a reactor based on thorium thorium is pretty much unknown but right god of thunder has the right sort of look and feel if you want power uh, you can produce 25 kilograms of rhodium per year the rhodium is not radioactive chemists who use rhodium for all kinds of processes for catalytic reactions you'll be a hero because rhodium is extremely expensive much more expensive than gold and the, the amount of it on earth is is not not very high thorium's not really used for any catalytic reactions and yet a ton of thorium would be like a beach ball one ton of thorium gives you a gigawatt year uh, that's all year long lots and lots and lots of homes lots and lots and lots of homes because usually your power bill is kilowatt hours well, I'm talking about a million kilowatts for a year that's just this beach ball sized thing mm -hmm. that's being burned up mm -hmm. and that's all the waste I've produced in terms of mass is, is basically that small thing mm -hmm. It is very radioactive. You can't go near it. You can't go near a blowtorch. If you take a blowtorch and put it on your temple, you'll have incredible damage. But if a guy's welding six feet away over there, it's perfectly safe. So just because something is very bad close up doesn't mean that it's very terribly dangerous in all circumstances. And of course, you, you keep well away you design things mm -hmm. so that you but that's exactly what makes it completely impossible to try to sift through this fuel somehow and try to somehow design a bomb that won't be possible because the fuel is too radioactive for you to get anywhere near you're first gonna have to design a robot that's smart enough to design a bomb mm. and that's a much harder thing than just designing you, you know, doing, doing as I say, what the Iranians were con uh, uh, accused of doing. So, you know, in your academic circles, is this a discussion? Is this, or, or are there very few nuclear scientists that are, you know, championing this, championing this issue? Most people don't know much about it. That's what I would say. Even very educated scientists in other fields basically accept what they have heard because they haven't had time to look into it. And so uh, they will be very leery of the radiation. Gotcha. What about at the nuclear reactor here on campus, there's another director, are there two directors, there's an older gentleman there, right? Yeah, he's a reactor supervisor, Dr. Miller. Yeah. Does, so he's intimately involved with nuclear issues. Does he share your thoughts? Yes, yes. Anybody who's seen the totality of the evidence 
will unless they have other reasons. There could be many reasons why people have. The, the atomic theory of matter was, was proposed, and there were scientists who didn't quite buy it. Um, Gibbs did his whole work in thermodynamics in, in the 1870s um, without referring to atoms because it was controversial. But now everybody, there's overwhelming evidence for the atomic theory of matter, and no serious scientist questions it. You say, why not? There's overwhelming evidence for climate change. But the difference is, nobody makes any money out of the atomic theory of matter. What is that theory? Well, that the atoms exist, and that they're the smallest unit of matter. And, of course, we have DNA, we can see atoms, we can see gold surfaces, there they are like eggs in a carton with electron microscopy. It's, it's no question, helium, oxygen, we know all about it. But it was controversial. It was first proposed in ancient Greece, but without any real evidence. But then when Dalton said, hey, you know, it's two to one, it's three to one, why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be a square root of two to one? Uh, these other numbers exist. Why is it integers? Maybe there's a smallest thing, and that's the. Uh, maybe there's a real thing that's making it two to one. H two O, not H square root of two O. You never see it. Hmm. And uh, but so everybody accepts that now. In chemistry, we wouldn't we wouldn't be anywhere without the atomic theory. But there's no money at stake. But when you talk about fossil fuels, now I've borrowed billions to buy a coal mine, and now you're coming along, and Johnny come lately, and saying, no, 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 oh, don't, just, no, no, coal's not bad, there's nothing going on, let's get a guy in there who'll be for us. But the same thing's true with renewables. Exactly the same thing. They're no good either, but let's have a subsidy. Hmm. Let's operate on people's better instincts and not on science. Let's attempt to do the right thing and we'll go straight to hell, paved with our good intentions. If there were no money involved, you would see things change quite dramatically. But if I give you a subsidy to do anything, mm -hmm. so you can make a profit whether it's any good or not, mm -hmm. You will, you'll, you'll see, that's how business works. They'll be there very fast and quick, and they'll be making money, and that's what they're concerned with doing, not whether your solar installation uh, is sustainable. Mm -hmm. If it sounds good, that'll be good. So, Professor, if somebody is intrigued with your thoughts and arguments... What, what, and, but they're maybe they want more information where, where should they go is there something to read is there something to watch oh there's, there's lots of stuff to read and watch there are companies who are on this molten salt idea rather tellingly they're all outside the United States because of the nuclear regulatory commission there's a company called terrestrial energy in Canada, they're 
attempting to license these new, very powerful reactors of the type I described. TerraPower, which is Bill Gates' company, um, is doing stuff outside the U.S. They're headquartered in the U.S., but um, there's a Danish company called Seaborg Technologies. They're working on a molten salt reactor. There's Thorcon. They're in Malaysia. And the, the trouble you've got is if you like living in Irvine, then you can't necessarily participate in these. You'd have to move um, in order. But I, I watch these companies, and uh, they're making progress. We'll see if it doesn't matter what kind of product you've got or how good it is, if everyone decides they don't want it, mm. right? You can't sell it, and you go out of business, and that that will be that, and that could be that could be what happens for a while. I have faith in science. When I was when I was a kid, they used to say if you have ulcers, it's because you're worrying, and you should stop worrying. Especially don't worry about having ulcers because that'll be a positive feedback loop and you'll be dead. And it turns out, one scientist said, you know, I find these H. pylori, these bacteria, around the ulcers. I wonder if these bacteria have something to do with this inflammation here and if it might be a bacterial infection instead. And everybody at the time said, this guy is a nut. But guess what? The nut was right because the scientific evidence, he treated people with antibiotics, bingo, no ulcers. Miracle cure. But you have to first do the science. I think when people do the science, they will come around quickly. If you don't, you'll be at such a competitive disadvantage that you'll end up as a third world country. If the Chinese, and the Chinese are building lots of nuclear power plants, they don't talk about it much. They're like us, they brag about the solar, it's all for show, but the real heavy lifting they're building one after another after another. If you get into a dust-up with them and they're building their planes that way and you're waiting for the sun to shine, I, I've got news for you how that's going to end up. Thank you, Professor. Sure. We'll talk again. Absolutely. I'd be happy to.